Hi, welcome to another episode of Kidone, War Stories on the Cutting Edge of IP Modernization. My name is David L. Cohen, and I'm the owner of Kidone IP, a consultancy, and David L. Cohen PC, a law firm, where we provide IP modernization services to clients both large and small. Every episode, I interview other subject matter experts and leaders in the wide world of prosecuting, asserting, analyzing, monetizing, and defending intellectual property rights. You can find this show on YouTube, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and many more. Today, my guest is Daryl Lim. Daryl is the H. Laddie Montague Jr. Chair in in Law at Penn State Dickinson Law and co-hire at the Institute of Computational Data Sciences at Penn State University. He also serves as the Associate Dean for Research and Innovation and Founding Director of the Intellectual Property Law and Innovation Initiative. Professor Lin Lim is an award-winning author, observer, and commentator of national and global trends in IP and competition policy and how they influence and are influenced by law, technology, economics, and politics. Among his many accomplishments, he's a founding member of the Global IP Alliance and its local chapters in Pennsylvania and Illinois. In addition, he serves as co-chair to the universe of the University Education Committee in the U.S. IP Alliance. He consults and publishes internationally on various IP and antitrust issues. Among his various accomplishments, Daryl headed the IP program at UIC Law from 2015 to 22, and in no small part to Professor Lin, the IP program at UIC Law remains one of the most respected in the country. And also since 2017, Professor Lin has convened the annual IP Law Conference now in its 65th year and introduced the IP Leaders Roundtable, bringing together thought leaders of different persuasions to devise practical solutions to contemporary IP challenges in the IP world. So I, I'm sure there's plenty more, but I didn't want to get your head too big for the camera, Daryl. So, <laughs> um, well, welcome. And so I know that uh, you, uh, and the readers should find it obvious, you don't have a typical Midwestern accent. So you you originally from Singapore. And so maybe if you could briefly describe how you how you ended up in, in IP law and in, and in uh ultimately in academia and, and in the U.S. Uh, for, our, for our listeners. Well, thank you, David, uh, for inviting me. I remember in the spring of 2018, you had come to Fordham. I was uh, on sabbatical visiting there, and we were in the cafeteria, and you told me about Kidon, this exciting new enterprise that you were a part of. And here we are. <laughs> four you. years later and i'm so happy to see how it's grown and this impressive podcast series that you've put together the journey into ip actually didn't take place in singapore it took place in stockholm in sweden and i think it was probably telling that for the rest of my professional life i would be an outsider looking in whether it's uh, looking into the developments in international law uh, as a Singaporean in Sweden, or looking in as uh, somebody not trained in Singapore IP law in the first instance, looking in and seeing how those developments gel or do not with other developments elsewhere. And most recently, of course, longest chapter of my professional journey has been here in the United States, looking in from the outside and in some ways from the inside out too, of 
what's been going on in the U.S. and what's been going on outside and how it affects the U.S. And we are we live in exciting times. I say intellectually <laughs> exciting, but perhaps not quite in those times where you could sleep as well at night. Yes. But I think uh, therein lies both challenge and opportunity. Challenge because there are so many more complex issues, David, as you yourself, your own journey, having <laughs> uh, come in atypically with three master's degrees and, <laughs> and a JD from Northwestern. And Northwestern itself is known as an atypical law school because it's always been very entrepreneurial and right. woven in a business focus in its um, pedagogy. And I think where we are in this world right now, we really need to be outsiders looking in and having that sort of nimbleness and plurality of talents so that we can reach across the aisle, so to speak, reach across countries and deal with uh, complex, multifaceted issues, which no one country can solve, but even in what we do day to day, no one legal scholar in one discipline or even a multitude of scholars or even across the entire legal fraternity of practitioners, in-house counsel and judges can solve. And so you and I have had the privilege of being part of this um, magnificent annual event called the Fordham IP Conference. And I think platforms like these uh, at Fordham and elsewhere are needed more than ever. Uh, so I, I will pause there. There's plenty there already to talk about. No, definitely. I, I, I think I think what I what I'm hearing you say, Daryl, is that your your professional journey uh, into IP, by the nature of of where and how you did it, sort of made you focus as an outsider looking in or an insider looking out, and that I, I think the implicit point is that's what stimulated your interest in in legal academia. In, in, in general, from leaving the grind, I guess, because you felt you had something to add from that perspective that you had. And it also seems that you're saying that, and I agree with you, that um, some of these multidisciplinary, multi-perspective, maybe multidisciplinary is, is, a, is a freighted term in academia, so multi-perspective, maybe, uh, approach to um, looking at issues is, is uh, very important. Uh, in academia, but in general, and, and uh, you know, in fact, that's one of the things that drew me to IP was that um, I uh, I was always interested in physics, even though I was not very good at it, <laughs> um, and, and and interested in history. And somehow or another, I fell into history of science, which uh, was fascinating, but that was sort of not broad enough. And I was looking at the history of top, top politics as well. And then, oh, there you go, science, politics, history, IP law is perfect because it, it, it's sort of, by its nature, it's sort of a, a very multidisciplinary topic on its own. And, and, and uh, despite many attempts to sort of cordon it off from other factors, uh, it shouldn't be. Well, what, what is the history of science, by the way, David? Is it gun, guns, germs, and steel? Is it the... The life and times of Thomas Edison. What is it? Well, it could be many different things. I mean, I think uh, you know that that that's a loaded question. Uh, the history of science as an academic field, in the modern sense, is really only since the '60s, I think. And the question, you know, there's a lot of ways that they've tried to do it. The problem has always been, and I'm just 
giving my little speech here. The problem has always been that it's been written by scientists who are, are not trained as historians. So it's been the history of problems that scientists, the history of, of fake problems that scientists claims were solved that they're using for pedagogical purposes to show how to solve the problems that they're actually solving today. Irrespective of whether those problems were in fact the problems that people in those periods of time were trying to solve and those were the solutions, they're really using it as a heuristic exercise to help people understand. I, I can tell you that uh, scientists are not the only people that are guilty of that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think lawyers are too. <laughs> the history of law is a fascinating thing. But <clears throat> you know, now you know what we were interested in when I was into it was um sort of the I mean there was one fascinating scientist, a historian who was looking at the anthropology uh, of of law of science and I'm just trying to understand how labs work historically and whatnot and, and what worked and what didn't work. And that has some practical impact. But one of the other things that she did to do that was recreate under actual lab conditions prior prior um, experiments that were tried to do. But others were um, looking at other things. You know, and my, my I actually came into it. Uh, I, I was lucky enough to study with John Pocock. At, at Johns Hopkins, who mm-hmm. really into you know contextual analysis of, of of all different things and the meaning of words and and, um, and and things of that nature and and I I got into it because of, of some time at Cambridge at UCL where I was and then at UCL in London where we were focusing I was focusing on the sort of the relationship between well I was a late 18th century Britain man. Uh, and, and I was fascinated about the relationship between politics, science, religion, and, um, and technology. And, you know, what was great about that time was that that was one of the last periods in history where you can have a unified theory of everything. Mm-hmm. And I mean, literally everything and not be thought of as a complete crank. <laughs> you might have you, been. you know, if anybody read your biography, they should be completely fascinated because not only do you have this, um, interest and training in the classics, you know, so to speak, history, political science, and so on. But also, you've got this international perspective. You're truly cosmopolitan. You know, I would say I'm just like you, although I would only claim that just like you had trouble with physics. And just like you, I think I agree that mentorship is so important. And really, we we really are path dependent uh, in that way. And the people in our lives uh, who we are for, sometimes fortunate enough to have as mentors really influences what we do. Yeah, yeah. So who were your mentors? Well, I would say Hugh Hansen is certainly one of them. And when you talk, gave me that very kind introduction, one of the things that you mentioned was how I'd like to bring people together from different perspectives, really this big tent approach. And Hugh Hansen had been doing this now for, uh, I think the coming conference be it's 30th. Yeah. So 30 years, even before people were thinking about IP seriously, and certainly not internationally, and certainly not bringing judges, academics, and uh, practitioners together. I mean, why would judges and practitioners want to talk to academics anyway? And yet, right. and yet he was able to carve a niche for all different perspectives. And that's why people go there. They call it the Davos of the IP world, because they know that they will get candid views. So not just different views, but candid views. Well, I think uh, that's important too, Daryl. And, and I think I think it speaks to something about you that's important. Um, I always found one of the reasons why um, a Fordham was wonderful 
uh, was not just the diversity of people, hmm. but that everyone felt safe enough to say what they were muttering under their breath while they were working. And, 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 and Hugh let them do that and he, and no one got shut down. And maybe, you know, maybe it was because the judges left from their home countries and they felt safe under true ground or whatever. But I, I think that's a, that's something that you do as well is that you make people that you invite feel comfortable so that you can actually have a productive conversation. Cause I think you can have all the brilliant people. And I've seen this in business and in law, you can have all the brilliant people in the world, but if they don't feel something, whatever that something is, they won't contribute their best. And, and you know, I think that's uh, really symptomatic of the broader issues that we can talk about. It certainly has been plaguing um, the headlines, whether you're talking about with anti-suit injunctions and friend, whether you're talking about the COVID waiver at the WTO, whether you're talking even at the international level with uh, the breakdown of multilateralism, wars in continental Europe and so on. That there's really a deficit of a reservoir of trust. And yes. until you have that comfort that you just mentioned, I think a lot of the problems will not even be solved by the law because if the law is really there when relationships break down and you have that the law is the, the last vanguard, if you like, the, the last resort before you come to blows. And when laws are disregarded, and you know this because you studied the history of law, that uh, we really are just one step shy of anarchy. Oh, 1,000%. You know, and, I, and I'm, it's sad, but I, my standard advice to clients when, when drafting agreements with parties is like, how, how much do you trust these people? And they ask me why. Because I said, paper is only as good as the people who sign it. And, and, and even then, uh, even if you don't trust them, it's only as good as the system that's going to enforce it. And and unfortunately, you know, we talk about efficient infringement and whatever, and I'm not to get into too, anything too loaded. But I, I think, and whether or not the people accused of efficient infringement are in fact being engaging in efficient infringement, but there is something in the cultural water right now that people engage in that, like, you know, uh, infringe now or violate now or breach now and apologize later. And, and it seems to be sort of almost... In, uh, the culture in business, the culture in 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 in, in the culture now, and I think I think it is it is a macro issue that you know we could talk about and that's impacting our little corner of the world too. Yes, well, IP has always been a little bit different. I remember in Singapore when I was growing up, the IP office there had to put a very concerted effort as we were ramping up to join. The U.S. Singapore Free Trade Agreement right. back in two thousand and three and came into force two thousand and four. Uh, Singapore was not the sterling, shining city of IP protection that you know it today. <laughs> I, I I could walk along the street and get any number of pirated CDs and movies and so on, and um, it, it was that stage of development. Yeah, but they had to put out a campaign, educate the people that. Uh, IP theft is theft and really instill a, a different type of consciousness into the population. So when you talk about efficient infringement, which by the way, is also itself a loaded term, that uh, folks, especially I think uh, the big tech folks, we won't name names, but I think it's all out there, really believe that 
that's the that makes business sense to do that. Uh, and and why pay when you don't have to? And the the 100%. problem the problem David is it used to be more I think symmetrical. And patents, you know, you could be on one side or the other, but I think in the tech world that is is quite skewed. And and so whether if you are Nokia, for example, yes, you are pro IP, but if you are somebody else uh, that's an implementer and you're consistently an implementer, you you basically go back in a sense to generics and brands, um, and it, it's even more skewed as I understand than that in the tech world. So with, you know, without that parity, you don't really have. A, um, interest without a neutral arbiter. To, no, I think I think that's an issue. Or, you know, to, so turning to find turning, a common framework. Uh, exactly, and you know, so turning to, uh, and I'm going to go at this a little sideways, but trying to bring in like legal academia. You know, having having started as I mentioned in, in sort of a niche academic subject, history of science, um, and and you know, IP. When I started IP in was it 96, 94, whatever it is. When I was in law school, it was also somewhat of a niche subject in that, you know, nowadays every school has IP, but then only very few did. And my observation is both in IP, but across niche subjects is when they start, you get these professors who are very, who are like cheerleaders for the field. They're, they're, they teach it, right? But they also are cheerleaders and IP is great. It's wonderful and everything like that. And then there's sort of this decadent cycle where as it becomes more and more uh, pervasive and in, in the field. And, and and this is sort of general. I mean, we could talk about how it relates to IP, but my observation is, is as as the subject area in academia becomes more common and, and spread across, you get this weird phenomenon of anti-niche subject professors of the niche subject who are sort of like almost self-hating professors of the niche subject. And, you know, I, I, I have my thoughts, but, you know, you have these weird um, situations where you have professors of, of IP sort of arguing against the existence of IP, and I'm curious if you're what kind of trends you've seen in the both whether you notice that trend, but also what, how you've seen the history of of IP academia change over time. I think that's certainly true. You're not the first person that's that's observed that trend, and I think it's partly generational. You have. Folks that grew up, as you say, champions of the system, they saw what the world was like before. They saw the difference that having that common system of strong IP rights uh, does. And then you have people that are brought up in a generation that are influenced by media that talk about how big bad pharma is uh, depriving needy countries of access to medicines. You see... Um, the Business Software Alliance uh, or uh, record companies bringing ill-informed lawsuits that get blown out, blown out of proportion against single mothers for infringing on right. a few songs. And, and then it feeds into this broader narrative of a distrust of authority that came about probably during the hippie era, the 60s <laughs> and 70s, anti-establishment mentality. And it was cool. To hit on hit not hit on IP, I should say, to hit IP, and you have the wellspring of support from the young, even younger generation who are their students saying, "Oh yes, of course, my, my professor actually understands me." And right. then you have the rise of the tech companies, who 
do nothing to um, disabuse folks of that view. Um, everything should be free or everything should be close to free. And what happens over time is you have um, a shift in the way that both legal academia and the people who go through the system and come out see it. And so when you talk about the views of institutions, for example, like George Mason, um, they stand, if you like, polemically oppos opposed to other institutions like Berkeley, for example, that are known um, to be, if you like, more uh, anti-IP. Or <laughs> yeah. that itself is a loaded term. So I should say uh, uh, a different view of IP yeah. Uh, yeah. than, than uh, folks at George Mason have. And it's not pluralist. I mean, it's not mono uh, uh, chromatic in that sense. I think there are many nuances along the way. Um, but I, I think that generally has been the trend. And it, I think it's symptomatic of a broader narrative and the broader need to have the people that believe in IP convincingly explain to their constituents why IP should be respected and why you should have these rules in these areas in this way and how we are also taking care of your concerns. And I think that's been an effort that has been somewhat lacking. The Western style of conflict resolution is more, it's more who pounds the table more loudly. And I think this is where we can learn from, if you like, softer, more consensus-driven Asian styles of finding consensus through negotiation, through quiet understandings, and through a better uh, alignment with underlying interests. And that takes relationship building. It takes patience. Not really thinking in terms of news cycles or elections every two years. Yeah. No, I think I think that's a that's fascinating point. And, and so just I'm going to have one tangent, but then one sort of question. So there was a, a some fellow half-jokingly, it was very popular in LinkedIn, created flowcharts of negotiation styles by countries. And it was, <laughs> you should, it, it, I, I, I have to be able to find it, but it, it actually was painfully accurate and hilarious at the same time. And sort of supports a lot of what you're saying, but it, it was just in graphical form. Um, but so uh, sort of a, the, the, the real question that I had was, you know, another trend I've observed in legal academia, both because I wanted to be an academic myself at one point in time, although I like to say I'm a frustrated academic, so now, now the world has to suffer. Not too late, not too late, David. Not too late, not too late, right? Um, but maybe, maybe, but uh, too many obligations presently. Um, but um, we can get you in as an adjunct, think about it. All right, all right, I'll, we should <laughs> talk, we'll talk, we'll talk. But, um, it, it, you know, I've also observed this, is that it used to be that, you know, back in the glory days or the original days or whatever, the golden age, whatever, you, however you want to talk about it, in a non-loaded way, that most professors were practitioners at one point in time. Yes. And if they weren't practitioners, they were, uh, uh, you know, superstar associates who ended up uh, going into, um, going into, um, what's it called? The, um, you know, going into academia at some point. Now, it, 
joking through, through the cluck system so they would yeah, go through, through the, the federal cluck ship right federal cluck ship and then they and worked then for a few years and, and yeah and, and this, there were certain firms that were known like if you didn't want to be partner you went to, to become a professor now, now it seems that you know you got to have like three or four phds in obscure topics <laughs> to, that may be completely unrelated to law uh to become a professor of law and i and i wonder you know of course the cynical view is that legal academia is 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 chafing against the, the fact that law school is a professional school, and they want to be academics like everybody else, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so they're they're going into the basket weaving type. <laughs> this is the cynical view. The basket weaving approach to 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 other topics that try to find how many angels dance on the head of a pin, um, but you know, there there definitely is a sense that um there's a dis disconnect between what and 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 may, you know things that your programming definitely does a lot to disabuse that disconnect or to attack that disconnect or whatever you want to say whatever verb you choose but um there's definitely a sense that what academia does in the law is very different from what practitioners need in the law uh, sometimes in amusing ways and sometimes in harmful ways. And I'm curious if you observed that trend and, 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 and what your thoughts were and well, how it might relate to the general issues we were just talking about before. Let, 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 I think that's an excellent question, David. Let me relate my answer to the title of your podcast, which is War Stories. And <laughs> I, I'll, I'll tell you that my personal story reflects um, that trend that you just observed. I started at John Marshall Law School, founded 1899, and it was um, itself an institution that was built on the backs of practitioners who gave of their time really as adjuncts. And it was not until much later on in its history that you had full-time law professors. And even then, was well law professors who also practiced or law professors who trained um, there are students who are marginalized, uh, whether at that time, you know, women or minority races, et cetera, and were very proud of their evening class. And so really it was a school of opportunity and by necessity to, in order to give their graduates a comparative advantage, they had to be able to tell employers, please hire our graduates because they are practice ready. And that has become a tagline for the school. Right, And because they were practice ready, and people have told me this over the years, they look differently at John Marshall graduates because when they come in from day one, they know how to do some basic things, which um, some of the better branded schools, does, <laughs> they, they don't, don't quite come in with the same yes. type of skill set. Yes. And you don't really need to pontificate about um, the policy reasons for this or that rule. You want to be, get the job done. And so UIC acquired John Marshall. It's now facing, I think, a more uh, uh, tensions that are more common to other institutions, other law schools that have gone on this journey, which is how do you integrate with the broader family of right. scientists and um, theorists? Um, and law schools are not quite the cash cows that they used to be. And you've got to think about grant applications and therefore you need to be able to talk to 
your colleagues in a way which makes sense to them. Right. Also, there's that pressure from the better ranked academic institutions, law schools, that pride themselves on theoretical thinking. So I was at in Chicago for now last 10 years, and we always had activities of Loyola and Northwestern and Chicago Kent. And the University of Chicago wasn't quite part of what we did, not just because they were located in Hyde Park, but really their focus was not quite in the things which we were focused on. And whether it's a combination of intellectual snobbery or, or uh, just a different um, bent, it was not something which gelled. And, but at the same time, that's how every law school wants to be. They want to be one of the top 10 or top 20 law schools in their country. So what do you do? You look at those schools that are in that ranking and you try to emulate them. And so on and on it goes. You produce a whole nation-wide population of schools which pride themselves in thinking a certain way. Now, I should say that there is a redeeming effect to that. And it's not all bad because it forces, uh, in, in this interdisciplinary type thinking that we now have to engage in, uh, you need to learn different skill sets. For example, right now I'm at Penn State Dickinson Law. And Penn Dickinson Law itself was a standalone law school that was um, acquired by Penn State University. And I'm a co-hire, as you mentioned in your introduction right. of ICDS, dealing with big data and AI. So I now have the opportunity to bring facts and data to legal policy making, legal doctrine. And that's wonderful because um, it brings the discussion out from a he said, she said to here, look at the numbers. And look at the numbers, not just from a small population set, but look at the numbers really from across a state or across a country. And look at issues like diversity, equity, and inclusion to say how we can bring people who are otherwise um, minority groups without access to the patent system or the trademark system, or what difference that might make to the GDP of, say, Pennsylvania or the United States. Uh, and I mean, this is a whole new dimension of legal scholarship, which is just starting to bloom and mm -hmm. which I think will characterize how academia will look like probably for the next decade. No, I think I think that's really fascinating, and you know, big data is coming up in very interesting ways. My my father is um, historian of medieval eschatology, believe it or not. <laughs> and, I run it, so it sort of runs in the family. I see. Well, he was a businessman and an economist. Before, <laughs> yeah, the, and, the polymath and, ability too. Yes, indeed. And and uh, one of the things that you know, I, I like to read some of his stuff, and one of the things that I see is um, applying big data to the spread of manuscripts. In the Middle Ages and earlier, because you you wonder how ideas spread. Well, this show you how ideas spread because you now know where the manuscript was at a particular point in time, and sometimes you even know who was given access to it. And it's really fascinating to see these kinds of things. And 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 so big data and, and those can 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 be used in all different interesting ways. But uh, so you're touching on something here that that I think is important. So. You know, we, we sort of talk about now the, the role of I, the IP professor in society. There was a cheerleader for IP, 
but uh, and then you know maybe not so much anymore and uh, talking to talking to themselves. What what do you see your uh, sort of the role of an IP professor? Uh, what should be the role of an IP professor uh, in, in society, both within the, the legal society and 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 the larger legal community, but also in the broader society at large? Well, I I think the important first thing to highlight is that there is no one definition or one skill set or one role. Uh, different IP professors bring to this label called being an IP professor their own journey and right. their own interests and their own skill sets. And, and I think that's a good thing. You have a plurality of um, IP professors focused on different things and in, in a different way. My journey has been one of being an outsider looking in and seeing the importance of bringing people together. And so that's what I bring to how I teach IP law and how I pursue interests that are related to being a professor, including organizing conferences, including talking to you and <laughs> sharing what little I know and what little I believe about um how the world might be improved in the world that the the spheres that we live in and um others address other issues which which are equally important but which i have no talent or time for and these are um important interests and i think in the in, in the framework of a marketplace of ideas hopefully you have that specialization that meets a need and if the meet then the need is not wanted or the skill set is not wanted then the market shifts uh, i don't think that the market is quite working so well for the reasons that we just discussed previously and we might be institutionally rewarding behavior which is not particularly socially productive but which may be good for rankings and other reasons and I think that then invites us to consider whether we should rethink um, how we reward particular um, institutions or particular skill sets or particular um, interests. No, I think I think that's a fascinating point. And, and so, you know, back on the outside of looking in point, one of my uh, prior one of my prior gigs, I worked for the Law Society of England and Wales. And I, my job as the outsider looking in was helping advise people from various common law jurisdictions how to practice in other ones. And, and what it forced me to do is get a better understanding of uh, how the teaching, of teaching how to be a lawyer in different jurisdictions worked. And it's very different. And, and you know, we, there's this bias that most people have, um, especially in a country as big as the U.S., but I think everywhere, um, it's a very parochial bias, you know, what we have, what exists, you know, the naturalist fallacy, because it exists, that's what's good, it's good. Um, and you might not even know other things that exist. And I'm just curious, have you thought about generally how law is taught and lawyers are trained in other countries um, and how IP is taught in other countries or, or jurisdictions to be <laughs> technical, because uh, they are different within different countries. Um, are taught and, and how, you know, what you sort of see that's good um, about it that might be worth um, bringing to the States 
if you could, but also, you know, by the same token, what you think that what you've learned there that shows, hey, you know what we're doing in the U.S. in fact isn't so bad. Or well, pretty- I, I would say my own journey reflects that. Here's another story. You asked where I first started learning IP was at Stockholm University, and they used a British textbook uh, by Cornish. Yes, so I Cornish. know that one. Yes, <laughs> I have it somewhere. <laughs> and, and so, so the day in Singapore. Um, so in the European system, they're a lot more textbook focused. You have a, a learned scholar that distills what you need to know about the law into a 500-page treatise, and that's it. In Singapore, they give you a thick stack of readings in your mailbox, easily topping a 1,000 pages per subject each semester. They don't curate it for you by page pages, um, and they normally give you more than you could possibly read or need, but which could be relevant. And then it's up to you to sort through why it's relevant, how it's relevant, um, and think like a practitioner because nobody's going to do that curation for you in practice. In the US, when I first came for my graduate education, I was uh, intrigued by the casebook system, which tries to in a sense, find a balance between the European model of having a textbook and then having just cases and articles and you go sort things out. But at the same time, that was complemented by, in some senses, in some sense, the Socratic method, in other ways, more of not quite cold calling, but warm calling. And you are not made to shiver in your seat when your name is called, but you actually ain't. Well, I, I had I had discussion. a Kingsfield I had a Kingsfield bike <laughs> professor. Yeah, my condolences. And I left class usually not knowing, having been wonderfully entertained and and stimulated by the discussion, but not knowing then. So, what is the point of all of this? How am I going to answer the exam? And. In my own approach to legal education, I've tried to meld the best of the three. And, well, I'll leave it to my students to tell you whether it's worked or not. Right. But I, I, I think the question that you asked has an underlying assumption, which is an important one, that no one system has the monopoly on wisdom. But nor should we think that having arrived, we can't do better. Right. And... Uh, I think one of the great strengths of the United States is its ability to draw folks from all over the world and actually then enrich a country by those very diverse experiences. And you can't quite do that in many of the other places, whether for cultural or linguistic reasons, um, or really for economic and and um, public health reasons, such as you might be bombed or you know you might have to live a very different type of lifestyle. Right. Um, right too too austere, I think, for most. And so I I think it's something which should endure in this country. Um, And I think it will be a good thing. No, I I think that's I think that's 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 great. Uh, You know, it's interesting uh, is that old saying that, you know, at least it relates to in many, many areas of 
the law, especially IP law and antitrust law, which are your expertise. You know, if the United States sneezed, the world caught a cold. Uh, in other words, that the whatever was going on here has, has in the states would would have um, basically be either aped or react to reacted to negative. You know, in in in, in reacted to elsewhere. Um, but the reaction would be based on what happened in the states. Whereas now, I think you have these emergence of very very strong movements of their own making and own that come from their own sort of traditions in Europe, in China, uh, in, in South America and elsewhere, uh, both in IP and, and, um, in antitrust among other areas, of course. And, you know, on the one hand, we can, you know, decry the, the, the multi multipolar world from a, from a peace and harmony perspective, but, you know, it's sort of interesting that from a, um, from the topic that whatever you want to call the topic we just talked about and actually that actually might be a good thing in that you're starting to have different experiments in how to govern people uh that can be in that could theoretically be in communication with each other and and different experiments on how to educate the lawyer class that could be and i'm just sort of curious if you've you've observed that and 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 how you think that impacts well i I was giving a talk to a group of in-house counsel and practitioners not two or three weeks ago. And they asked me to talk about current developments. And one of the things I touched on was the Biden administration's withdrawal of um, guidelines, actually, on uh, injunctions for standing essential patents. And a lot of the reaction, positive or negative, focused on the old narrative of, well, is this anti-patent, pro-patent? Um, should antitrust have a role to play in how you exploit your patents? And I realized that that type of discussion was so 90s, or if you want to be charitable, so 2000s. The world has moved on. In fact, the world was is the whole point, I, I said to the audience, because really who cares where the final points of this is if you don't also take into account the third dimension, which is that you need to have rules that make sense to your country's strategic interests and national place in the world if you don't want them to take your lunch. And and um, how much do people actually know about how business is done in China or how people think in China, how the government is run in China? For many in the audience, it was the first time they actually thought about it. And I was shocked because these are senior executives at multinationals or senior lawyers advising these senior executives at multinationals. And I think it it really is a function, perhaps, of the fact that day-to-day people are just so absorbed in fighting fires. They, they don't have really have a chance to think both strategically and in an integrated way. And I think it's really behooves perhaps academics. If nothing else, we have more of the time and the interest in looking at these issues broadly. But also then the academics need to have a role in positioning themselves so that when they say something, it's relevant. And they're not just talking about, as you had uh, vividly put, how many about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. 
Yes. No, I think I think that's that's a beautiful a beautiful a beautiful thought that you know the the academic has to the academic academia I guess has to stay in this, stay in conversation with practice, um, such that when they do speak, they they they're taken seriously, as opposed to you know jocularly, <laughs> but also mostly because they they by the structure of what they do they have the opportunity to 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 take the broader view and and the deeper view of things and they're not because they're not putting out fires every day or at least we hope they're not putting out fires every day um, although they they may they may with staffing cuffs and stuff like that um that's a beautiful idea uh transitioning now to to the second part of your title down there a uh, dickinson law so it may be a trade secret that was a joke but i'm curious what your what your hope for sort of short-term and long-term plans are as as the new professor at at at, at dickinson law well I, I just started two weeks ago and certainly for the next several weeks or months i will focus on one thing which is to listen and learn um, i don't assume that every institution is the same dickinson law itself has a long and proud history that stretches even further back than john marshall and it's the oldest university in Pennsylvania. It's also in a different part of the country. It's in the Keystone yeah. State. Right. Um, part of what drew me there was this opportunity to really think regionally right from the start. How can I join, being in the Keystone State, um, activities in New York and Pennsylvania, Maryland and D.C. together? Um, and you've talked about the global IP alliance and the US IP alliance and th this type of thinking of bringing people together, not just the lawyers and judges or, and even academics, but also the creators, university tech funds for offices, um, K to 12 uh, folks, and really thinking about IP from a multifaceted perspective, education, exploitation, um, DEI, and then integrating with government and government, not just in national governments like we do, because DC is certainly at the hub of it, but also internationally. So with WIPO and through that, the United Nations and also through regional groupings. So I think uh, bringing the conversation to full circle, it really is uh, an exciting opportunity to connect to solve the global commons problems. So whether it's climate change, whether it's the digital economy, um, and to create a, a better framework that is, I think, more relevant for the times that we live in, that will help foster trust and hopefully uh, leave our successes with a better system than we inherited which was good for its time, but I think worth thinking, rethinking. Oh, that's wonderful. That sounds exciting. Um, how many professors are there in, in the Teach IP law at Dickinson? Well, it depends on how you come. We actually have quite a good number, uh, oh, given wow. the small faculty that we have. The dean herself uh, is an author of several IP case books. Uh, she's up for administrative necessity reasons not quite as involved i think in ip as she used to be but we have uh quite a number of scholars that approach ip from different perspectives including cryptocurrency 
oh, wow. um, traditional copyright. Um, and I do patents, but I also do other areas. So I think it's quite diverse, both in terms of the subject areas, but also in terms of the the penumbra that we look at. And That's I, I think it's a, it's a good community. <laughs> yes, but but also the fact that we are uh, not too far away from other law schools and there are these regional programs, I think it's quite an exciting time oh, definitely, definitely. to be in that area. Yeah, no, and, and um, are you, how, will you be teaching this semester? or are they gonna I, I will be teaching the semester. Uh, amongst the many other things I'll be doing is uh, really getting in touch with the 1Ls and there's no better way, I think, to get a sense of the pulse of the institution than to be involved in um, a 1L course. Right. And then also, I'll be teaching upper-level courses in, in the spring semester, antitrust and patents, which are my subject areas, but yeah. also then allows me to look at how I can grow opportunities beyond the classroom uh, for students in those areas, because... I am also the um, founding director of the IP initiative at Dickinson Law. And that means an op initiative means a, a new vanguard, a new way of thinking about programming and staying relevant, I think, in a world that's changed. Legal education has changed and we need to change with it. That sounds very, very exciting, Daryl. So I wish you the best of luck. It sounds exciting. Let's keep in touch, definitely, especially since now you're much closer to me. Although it was easier to, to fly to Chicago than to drive to to Penn State, but <laughs> <laughs> but maybe not nowadays with the with the. Airport. We we will bring bring Dickinson Law to the heart of government and to the heart of industry. So it might it might be at an address or a zip code that's near Close you before to too long. <laughs> well, in any event, let's stay in touch. And thank you so much. This has been wonderful. I really appreciate all your time. And um, to our viewers, uh, please feel free to reach out to Daryl um, at Penn State. What's the best way to get a hold of you? Ask Google. Ask Google. All right. Google has it. You have all your contact information on your various websites. Yes. Excellent. Oh, and, I, I should do a plug. Well, I do have a personal website, lawdaryl.com. Uh, so if you want to go there, that's you can reach me through my website too. Excellent. Excellent. I'll, I'll try to include a link in that in the, in the blurb with the, with the video. Well, thank you again. And it's been lots of fun. My pleasure. Thank you.